morning, everyone. <laughs> Let me just take a sip here. Let the kids run out. Well, I hope you've had a warm welcome. And I'm really excited just to get stuck back into the series that Peter was talking about, that we, in the last few weeks, have been looking how Jesus is just a different kind of king. And uh, I think what we'll discover today is that we're not only going to be talking about what the kind of king that we have, but that his kingdom is a lot different than what we would expect. So last week we saw that Jesus, his, his glory was revealed, that, and that God's glory is about really entering, entering into the grittiness of life. That Jesus... Uh, was revealed to three disciples, uh, and, and God the Father said, Hey, this is my beloved one. This is my son. Listen to him. He is greater than Moses and Elijah, the greatest prophets of the Old Testament who did ma- amazing miracles, talking about parting the Red Sea, feeding 603,250 men for 40 years from the sky. This one's greater. This, my son is far greater than these two guys. And, and, and from this glory, he goes down to the mountain and enters into the brokenness and the grittiness of life and cares for the broken, the needy, those that even are struggling with belief. He's there with them. And that's the kind of glory with God. And then the week before, we saw that the Son of Man actually, you know, he, well, Jesus kind of goes to his disciples and say, who do, you, who do you say that I am? And they say, oh, you're the Christ. You're the one that's going to bring the kingdom, right? And he goes, yeah, you've got it right now. Let me just tell you a little about what this kingdom is going to be about. The Son of Man... It's going to be handed over to the authorities of, of Israel. He's going to kill them, and three days later, he's going to rise again. And what we discover in both of these instances is that the disciples, we either don't get it or they're hostile to it. Because two weeks ago, we saw that Peter was like, whoa, whoa, whoa actually, Jesus, you're absolutely wrong. This, the Christ is supposed to come, and he's supposed to reign forever. How can you say he's going to die? And Jesus says, well, you're not getting this, guys. Actually, get behind me, Satan. This is actually the lie, because... I came to give my life. Because to, gain, to, to, to give life is to lose life. If you really want to hold on to life today, you have to, give it, you have to let it go. If you want life, you have to let it go. Because uh, to, to love me and to live for the gospel is to give up life. And I, they just didn't get it. And even as Jesus is walking down from the mountain of transfiguration, he's saying, keep silent about these things until I rise again from the dead. After he'd already talked to them plainly about what's going to happen, they're kind of like, what does he mean by rising from the dead? And I think we, like, kind of with 2,000 years of hindsight, kind of go, man, these disciples, aren't they just, like, stupid? You know, how can they not get this? And, you know, you kind of give them a bad time. You know, they're always, always getting it wrong. They don't understand what he's saying. And they kind of just seem to just continually have to, they continually repeat themselves of stupidity. And the reality is, is we're not much different. You think we're actually, in some ways, we have 2,000 years of hindsight. We know that actually Jesus rose from the dead. A lot of us believe that. And... And yet we're still just like them. And today, this week, we're going to see that they're completely competitive. And they're, they're fearfully competitive. And, and I don't know about you, but me, I'm like that quite a bit. You know, I, I used to be that way a lot as a younger person. You know, in the States, we talk, we kind of like, like celebrate the fearless competitor. You know, the guy that's going to go and do anything and everything to win. And they're kind of giving great honor and praise. And I'm starting to realize that actually, there's no such thing as a fearless competitor. Because everybody who competes is actually fearful. We're all fearful competitors. When we're competing, we're, we're fighting for place, we're fighting uh, for standing, we're fighting for honor. We're doing all kinds of, maybe protecting ourselves from feeling like we're a failure and we want to prove that we're not. And so we can do this in sports. And that doesn't mean we can't compete 
and have fun in sports without being a fearful competitors. We can compete and love one another and have a good time and play games together. This is not what I don't think, but I think just the ethos of like corporate, you know, corporate, the co- corporate world, you know, people fighting and, and trying to work their way to the top and keep people down. And even like, you know, sometimes you're, you're strategic about who you're competitive with, right? Those that are way below, you don't worry about them. Your peers, you're kind of really competitive with, but you know, you recognize those that are way better than you. And you kind of like stay away from them or you kind of make sure you're behind them. You know, like when I played American football, there were, I always recognized that there was kind of bigger, stronger, faster guys. And those are the people that I always were right behind in line. So I never had to go against them. So I didn't look silly in front of the coaches. I was being strategic. Because I, I knew that they were better than me, but I knew there was lots of other people that were not. So I kind of made sure that I was in line to make sure I was going to go against the people that uh, I could beat, you know? And, and we're like this in sports. We're like this in corporate America. We're like this in our families, sibling rivalries, all kinds of things. And, and we're like this in church. Church can be such a competitive place. I don't, you know, as a church historian, I could go in and show you about how often the church has gotten us wrong and how competitive we are. People striving to be archbishops and popes and everything else. And the church has been just as fearfully competitive as anything. And what we're going to see today is that actually this is not the, the, the moral, the, the way of the son's king, our kingdom. This isn't the kingdom that the son of man came to bring. Actually, we're going to discover that the the, the kingdom is about serving all, being last of all. And it's open to everyone, even the small, significant people. We're going to see that it's not a holy huddle. This kingdom isn't about kind of being a sect and keeping people out, but actually inviting everyone in and welcoming everyone in. And we're going to he- see something that's actually even, re- I think, really difficult today. Is that we're supposed to get rid of anything and anyone that's going to get in the way of this kind of living in the kingdom. Jesus is going to say something dramatically different, saying, hey, you've got to get rid of anything that's going to get in the way of this kind of living, that living for the, for the other and being a, living a life of sacrifice. That's where we're going today. So why don't we pick it up right into uh, Mark chapter 9, verse 30, and that's page 845 in the church books there. And we're going to look at the, really the first point from verses 930 through 37, that the Son of Man came... Uh, to serve all, and that the kingdom is about serving all and not fighting to get to the top, not to fighting to get to the top of the pyramid. So, in verse 30, they, it starts, They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, Son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, three days will, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying, and were afraid to ask him. So Jesus, this is after Jesus, you know, helps, uh, goes from the mountain, enters the grittiness of life, cares for people, kind of gets on his disciples saying, hey, you don't have enough faith. This is, you kind of try to do this on your own. You didn't really ask God for help in casting out this demon. And, um, and so now that he's going and, and walking away from the crowd, so he has time to teach his disciples. And you can imagine this is what's going on. Jesus is kind of walking along where they're going to their home base, Capernaum, we'll see. And the disciples are behind him. And he's teaching what he'd already taught them before. This is a second prediction of his death and resurrection. And he's probably going into detail. Mark just kind of gives us a line of, hey, this is what he taught. And, and they, after this lesson, they were kind of, they kind of knew what he was going to say. Or they kind of understood what he was saying, but were, were too afraid to kind of ask for clarification. Like, what do you actually mean by this? Because of what's happened in the past, right? They already rebuked 
just a few days later, uh, you know, a, a while ago, they were rebuked because they still didn't get it. And I still think they're not quite getting it. Because what happens is after they listen to this lesson, they're still walking along. You, you know, have you ever been in like, um, like a parent and you're driving and you kind of like tell a lesson, you teach your kids something, you know? Like, hey, this is the way that we're going to love each other in this, this, this family and this car trip and everything else. Okay, yeah, do you understand what we're talking about? Yeah, dad, yeah, yeah, yeah. And we get in the car and you start going somewhere. And not like 15 minutes later, they're like doing the exact opposite of what they just understood you're doing. And they're just fighting each other. So Jesus is walking along and these, these 12 guys are probably in the background going, so Jesus is going to die. So who's going to, one way of taking it is, who's going to take his place? Who's going to be number one? Who's going to be number 12? And who's going to be all between? I don't think that's what's actually happening. I think they're kind of saying, okay, Jesus is going to be the kingdom. He's going to be the guy. Who's going to be... Number, who's going to sit right next to him? And then who's going to be number 12? And, you know, and you're number four. I'm number three. And they're just arguing about all this, right? And it's the exact opposite of what Jesus is talking about his kingdom is going to be like. And they're sitting back in the background kind of arguing with one another, being competitive with each other. And, and then so if they, you pick it up in verse 33. They came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? So they get to Peter and Andrew's home. This is the kind of the home base for Jesus' ministry. Capernaum is a little town just on the Sea of Galilee. And they repeatedly go back to this place in the, the Gospel of Mark. And, and so he asks the question, because Jesus knows that they're arguing back there behind him. It's not like he's not aware of it, okay? And, and they were kind of silent. They're like, oh, I'm not going to tell Jesus. <laughs> we're not, uh, so in verse 34, but they kept silent for on the way they had argued with one another about who was going to be the greatest and and they're like they probably, i don't think they really wanted to admit what was going on and so jesus sat down and called the 12 in the house and he said to them and he started teaching if anyone would be first he must be last of all and servant of all now i think when the disciples heard this i think they would probably be dumbfounded because they're in an honor shame culture and to be shamed is to be at the bottom of the totem pole. And to be honored is to be the, the most important thing, to be at the top, right? And to have people serve you and, and to have power and privilege and all those kinds of things. And even, they went so far, like the rabbis back in this time, they actually kind of started speculating who would be sitting next to God and started naming people. Like the order of honor and how close they're going to get to God by the way that they live their life. This is really important. In the household structure, you had the children were the last and the father was the greatest. And in this household, that when Jesus is teaching, who would be seen as the greatest? It's going to be the rabbi. It's going to be Jesus. And Jesus says, actually, the one who's going to be the greatest, the one that's going to have the most honor, is the one that's last of all. The one that's serving everyone. Kind of the servant maid of the house. And I think they're going, this, what are you talking about, Jesus? This can't be the case. He says, well, I'll give you a visual illustration of what I'm going to be talking about. So, in 38, he says, he took a child and put him in the midst of them, right in the, in the place of honor, and, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Um, first, a couple of things to notice. This is, this is the first of like three of groups of four things that Jesus says. So we're going to see, he's talking about welcoming, welcoming, welcoming. And so he's making a real important point, I think. So we've got to pay attention to that. Oftentimes, this is kind of a side note, commentators kind of think this is where this section of the Gospel of Mark, Mark's not at his best. He doesn't know what he's doing. Actually, this is a really amazing passage 
that go to, goes together quite well. And we'll see as we work through it. And this is the first place to just notice that Jesus is really trying to make a point of welcoming and honoring somebody is very important in this kingdom. But he's saying the, the, the who is really important as well. He's saying actually the child who in this culture was considered to be the least important, the one to be ignored, in some ways the one to kind of just be suppressed. You kind of just didn't um, worry about them. Because, and I think for us it's difficult to really grasp, because children in a home, today they're seen as pure and innocent and should be cherished and protected and, and really elevated, in some, pla- in some families elevated to the point of the most importance. And, and so it's kind of, it's not the best example for us. It's more like, you know, kind of be sent, to be sensitive to someone like a little special needs crippled old pensioner who can't really offer anything to anybody. You know, that, in our culture, I think that might be seen as mm, maybe not the, the best place of honor. And Jesus is saying the way that you should honor and receive and welcome someone like this is the way you would receive the prime minister, David Cameron, into your home or queen of England. You know, it doesn't matter even if you disagree with the prime minister and are different parties. He comes to your house, you're going to welcome him. And Jesus is saying, you need to welcome not only me, you need to welcome this child like you would welcome me, the rabbi. But you not only welcome me, but you welcome the one who sent me, the father, the one that, that God. You need to welcome a child just as you would welcome God into your house. This is what the kingdom is like. This is what it is to be last of all and to serve all, to, to honor the one that is the least and mo- less important, the least significant, the way that you would honor the most significant. That's the way my kingdom is. It's not about fighting to get to the top. It's not making your way to have a position and making sure you have that. No, it's about getting to the bottom and lifting people up. Because we live in this upside down world where we think it's, it's right to be on top when actually the, the place where we're supposed to be is on the bottom lifting people up. So that's, that, that's kind of the first point. The son of man's kingdom is about serving all, everyone, as though they're more important than yourself and not fighting to be on top. Then, there's, then we get to the place where John has his moment of idiocy, if you will. He's kind of an embarrassing moment. Peter had his moment the last time Jesus predicted about his life. And now John, the other really important disciple, one that got to see Jesus on the mountain of transfiguration, he gets to have his moment because he objects to what Jesus says. And he says to, to Jesus, Teacher, in verse 38, We saw someone casting out demons in your name, and we tried to stop him. Because he was not following us. So let's just stop there. So I think John is kind of saying, it's okay, Jesus. You want us to take care of the small people and, and, and the child. But nobody really noticed that. They're not even really that significant acts of service and hospitality. Um, what about the great things, the great works that are going out there? By the way, you know, we just failed at casting out some demons. And now there's some people who aren't part of the 12 who are in your name doing mighty work, mightier works than we're doing. And they're not even following us. So what do you say about that? Isn't that an issue here? Because we're going to be ignored. We're not going to have a place of honor. And we're the 12. And, uh, it, and I think John's going to like, this is about a holy huddle. There's 12 of us in a circle. We've got our backs to the world. We're looking in. And we have, we gotta, we're, we've been jostling to make sure our position in this holy huddle is the case. And, and Jesus is saying, no, that's not the way this works at all. He's, Jesus says in verse 39... Uh, do not stop him, for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be soon after him to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. 
For truly, I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to, to Christ, or it could probably say to the name of Christ, will by no means lose his reward. So I think one, one of the things that Jesus, John was concerned about, and I think often we find in the church, is that we really love, we would want everybody to follow Jesus, but the actuality is we actually want people to follow us. Because that's what John's concern here. John's concern is, hey, there's people out there who are doing greater works than us, and they're not even following us. How's that going to work in the structure of honor? If, especially if you, Jesus, are telling us we're supposed to take care of kids, which no one's really going to notice. The insignificant. And that, that's what Jesus is. That, this is actually, the, this isn't a holy huddle, John. This is about everybody. And if someone's doing a great work in my name, that should be praised, and that's great. They're not against you. They're for what we're all about. And he says, look, don't worry about the, how great the work is or how small the work is. Because he says, even the smallest uh, act of hospitality isn't going to be ignored. It's going to be noticed. Because it's like, you know, if someone came to your house at this time, you'd offer them a glass of water. It's just the, that, a fresh cup of water. That's the most hospitable, simple act of hospitality you would do. It's kind of like going to someone's house today. And what are the first questions you a- ask a guest when they walk into your house? So uh, would you like a tea or coffee? And if, if someone comes into your house and they come in the name of Jesus, or they're being hospitable to, be, to you because you are connected to Christ, Jesus is saying, that small little act of hospitality, that's going to be noticed. That's going to be rewarded. That's significant. Even if you're doing miracles, it's just as important as the simple act of hospitality. So you're still not getting it, John. You're still worried about the place of honor rather than just living the, the, the way of the kingdom, which is caring for everybody and sacrificing for your, yourself for them and being hospitable, welcoming anybody in the name of Christ. And that was the... So we've had... Uh, let's see. We've had two fours already. I don't know if you noticed the second one. So you had welcome, welcome, welcome. So whoever welcomes me or welcomes a small child, not only welcomes me, but welcomes the the one who sent me. And then you have in in my name, right? So you have in my name in verse 37, just to notice. 39, in my name. Oh, excuse me, 38, in your name, which is the same kind of thing. John's saying that. And then when we we missed in 41, it actually says to belong in Christ's name. This is all about people who are kind of following Jesus, how does this church supposed to, what is church supposed to be about? What is the kingdom supposed to be about? Those who are in the name of Christ. And this isn't just like ambassadors. This is like who are, well, it is kind of ambassadors, but it's some way of, it's representing and being united to the character of who God Christ is. It's this real close relationship with Jesus. To, to, and you're not only, so when you, when you welcome someone is, who's in Christ, you're welcoming Jesus. It's that significant. And when you're welcoming Jesus, you're welcoming God the Father as well. And the kingdom is about welcoming and receiving and being hospitable and uplifting people above yourself. It's not about a holy huddle. It's about seeing the goodness of God be spread. And that's really the second point, the objection to what Jesus is saying. And then we return to Jesus' lesson um, from 42 to 48, which Jesus is going to go right at the heart of his disciples and say, don't let anything or anyone get in the way of being a part of the kingdom. It's really significant. And, and for us, I think, before we go on, this, this could be quite convicting, I think. And it's going to be quite hard. But I think we, we, 
just hold on to the fact that the songs that we're singing, don't, don't forget about uh, chapter 9, 30 through 32, that Jesus came and died for us, and he served us. And he's, he's made us right if we say, I'm with Jesus. But he's saying, don't let anything get in the way of that. So verse 42, he says, and this is the, the beginning of the last four um, words that we're going to notice. It's going to be cause to sin, cause to sin, cause to sin, cause to sin. So welcome, 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 cause to sin is the opposite of what he says. So he says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and thrown into the sea. Okay, so Jesus is saying, if someone, even the least and the least significant person in the kingdom who believes in me, if anyone gets in the way of them following me, it's going to be, it's, they're better off putting a gigantic millstone around their neck and jumping into the bottom of the ocean, or jumping into the sea. And the millstone is kind of, I don't know if everybody knows what a millstone is, you know, it's this thick stone where they used to grind to make flour, you know, take wheat and grain and make it into flour. And it looks like a gigantic donut. And he's saying, put this huge cement or rock granite donut on your neck and wear it like a collar and jump in. It's better for you to drown at the bottom of the ocean than for you to reject or cause someone to stumble or not to welcome someone who's in my name in that way. To get in their way of them following me. So it can mean sin, obviously, but I think it's far broader than the narrow sense of just sin. It's, it's if, you're, if you're getting in the way of someone following me and being in my name, there's some really significant consequences. If you are getting in the way of people living in the way of the kingdom, living for other, making someone greater, competing with each other, then you are better to put a collar around your neck and jump in the water and drown. That's how significant this is. And then, and so he's really focusing on kind of relationships, right? And now he's going to transition to our like, individuals, like your individual lives. Anything that gets in your life that causes you to, to fall away, to stumble, to not follow Jesus, to be competitive... He's got something serious to say about that. So let's look. 43 to 48. And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable uh, fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter into life lame and with two, uh, than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It's better for you to enter in the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell where their worm does not die and fire is not quenched. I got a drink of water for how I'm going to explain this one. No, it's not that hard. It's actually not that hard. Uh, there's a couple things I need to say before we go any further. So first is life and kingdom. So he's, he's talking about, you think about well, a kingdom or think about the city of Jerusalem. It's a, a walled city. Right? And he says, anything inside the wall, inside the kingdom, is the way of the, of the kingdom, the life, the moral, the ethos, the morality of the kingdom. And which is, is to care for the other, to honor the other above yourself, serve them, to be hospitable. Now, if anybody should not be hospitable, if anybody should cause someone to stumble, you have no place inside the kingdom. Actually, you belong in the, the rubbish bin outside. Because 
Gehenna or the Valley of Hinnom was just a big rubbish dump, which we translate into hell. And it's a description of where they would throw carcasses and and all these other things, and they would be constantly burning. And there would be worm eating, you know, worms eating this flesh and everything else. This is a nasty place. It's a rubbish bin. And it became the euphemism of hell, eternal punishment. And he's saying, either you're going to have life and live in this life and taste life and serve the other as I have served others, or you're going to be competitors and you're going to fearfully compete and, and try to be autonomous livers and make your way of life. And you know where, you're gonna, where your place is? It's outside the kingdom. It's going to be hell. And so whatever is causing you to be competitive, whatever is causing you to, to make yourself more significant than somebody else, be dramatic. You've got to cut it out. It, it, and he's talking about whatever you do, wherever you go, hands, feet. Whatever you see, right? Your whole life. If there's anything in your life that's causing you to not live in line with the way of the Son of Man, do something dramatic about it. And I'm hoping that next week we don't, there's not people coming back here next week with like uh, one less hand, one less foot, one less eye, because that's not what Jesus is saying, okay? He's not really saying that. I, in Mark 7, just a couple chapters before this, he says that everything we do, everything we think, is, is really driven by the values of our heart. So what we love determines how we think and how we perceive of reality, how we rationalize choices, and then that leads into action. So I think he's saying, is, if he's talking about anything you do, anything you see, any, anywhere you go, it's going to be governed by your heart. He's saying, there's something wrong with your heart. You better cut it out. And I hope, cut it out and get rid of it. Well, I mean, how do you cut out your heart? And it's, that's not the point. I think he's saying, is you're going to need help. Hopefully this is a place of absolute dependency. And I should go, the disciples are going, well, we can't do anything about that. And that's why I say, let's not hold, forget what Jesus has come to do. He's came to serve. He came to give his life. And we'll see next week or uh, in a couple weeks, he came to, to serve and not be served, but to be a ransom for many. To pay for the very issues here. Don't listen to the voices of the world and everything else saying that you're not good enough. He's actually good enough and everything else. But actually bring your shame. Bring your guilt. Bring your competitiveness. Bring your pride to the cross. Bring it to the Son of Man. And he will do something about it. Because then he says, uh, he moves into the... Uh, well, that's actually, I just want to say one, more, one other point. As in 48, um, I don't want to miss this. 48 is kind of a, it's a quote. From Isaiah sixty six twenty four, um, which at the end of the it's a great um, uh, book of prophecy Isaiah, and he's talking about the new heavens and the new earth, and the re- the place for the people who continually rebel and reject and do not respond to God's love, and the suffering servant, the Son of Man, they're going to have a, their place is going to be where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. This is a place of rebellion. They don't want to be in the kingdom. They don't want to be with the Son of Man. And so their place is going to be in the place of hell, the rubbish bin. Because you're outside of the walls of the kingdom. And so then Jesus comes to kind of the big point, the, main, the big idea of the passage. The big idea of his, his, ser- or his lesson. And he, it starts with 49. He says, For everyone will be salted with fire. Uh, well, actually, stop right there. For everyone will be salted with fire. I think this is kind of, a lot of people don't know what to do with this. And, and my best go is this, that salt is part of 
Well, there's some elements about um, salt. First, it's a preservative, right? It preserves things. It, it enhances taste. And for the Jews, it was a consummation of sacrifice. Because every, every sacrifice they gave to God, was salt was added. Because it was a preservative, it, it made things flavorful and tasty, and it consummated that sacrifice. And I think what Jesus is saying to his disciples is that everyone who is going to live in the kingdom is going to be salted with fire. They're going to live a life of sacrifice. They're going to go back to verse 35. They're going to see that everyone is far more important than them, and they're going to serve everyone. It's going to be a living a life of sacrifice. And that's what it is to be salted. So salt is good, he says. But if the salt, in verse 50, has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty? Again, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. So first, oh man, the atoms or the ovens aren't here. I was, I was kind of like, I'm going to have to explain sodium chloride and everything and kind of keep it right. Because sodium chloride is a chemical that doesn't lose its saltiness. It's a stable chemical, right? So it's impossible for saltiness to lose its saltiness. If it's pure, perfect sodium chloride. So what is Jesus on about, right? Well, first is the Dead Sea. That's where they would get their salt to this. So the, it would, this, the water would come and still and, and chemicals would gather. And they would gather chemical, or the, the minerals from the Dead Sea. And then they would let the water evaporate. And then the pure sodium chloride would be collected. And the rest of the minerals would be thrown away. Or if they left the, like a block on the ground right, of this mineral, after a while, the sodium and the salt would actually seep out of it into the ground. Because it wasn't pure. And so he's saying if salt is good, salt, as a rabbi said, is, is the, the most important thing of life. Because of what it is, he's saying, so if saltiness is connected to, to, to living of a life of sacrifice, then have, salt, have saltiness in yourselves. It's, it's kind of like, uh, well, live a life of tasty living. I mean, it's kind of, if salt enhances flavor, you know, like in, uh, in popcorn, it makes popcorn taste better. And a, a meal, you know, a, a, the perfect amount of seasoning will enhance the flavor of the meal. He's saying, hey, live a life that is attractive and that is a service because this is the way of the kingdom. It's a, the, the saltiness is kind of the way of the kingdom. The way of the king is, a tasty, is tasty living, which is directly connected to the life of sacrifice. And you have it within yourselves. And this is where you're going to have peace. Because let's just make contrast between the kingdom, which is... Uh, if the, if the, the ethos is salty living, tasty living, that's, it's characterized by sacrifice and, and caring for the other, then what is the flavor and the taste of hell? I don't know about you, but I've smelt like rotting uh, flesh. It's nasty. It's, it's rank. And it's full of maggots and everything else, and it's burning. Burning flesh doesn't smell good either, Right? So live a life that is tasty and good as opposed to a life of competitiveness and, 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 and self-protection that smells and tastes like death. I, I think that could be one of the ways. Here's a dramatic difference. The way of the kingdom is this. Is that, is, it's is a life that's seasoned by sacrifice. That's the way of the kingdom. That's the way of the king. Because he came to die for you and me. And for everyone, can you again? I kind of go, I kind of think back as you, have you as you listen to this, and as I was kind of pondering this during the week, um, I felt quite quite convicting. It's quite hard to think of in or out, 
And it sounds like it's kind of now it's up to me to kind of pull up my bootstraps, pull up my socks, and start cutting things out of my life. Start cutting things in my heart out. And I can't be my own heart surgeon. But I think what Christ is going to go and write at his disciples is stop being independent and start being dependent on me. Start living a life where you can't bring anything and you blow yourself and in kind of a, a life of desperation, put in your place of absolute humility and count on me for everything. And therefore, you're going to serve everyone and you're going to welcome everyone as you would welcome me. Um, and, and can you imagine just what, what this church would be like? It'd be a lot different. I think, I think the world would find it quite tasty. I think the world... Uh, well, the, the world, just everybody, I think, really craves people who live a l- lives that are for the other person. Now, we, we don't want to necessarily live lives for other people. We want to be served, right? And that's the issue. But, but, but I think a lot of people are attractive, attracted to leaders who um, are caring and kind and, and looking out for the, the people that they're, they're, they're leading, right? In the cor- corporate world, people describe leaders as they want someone who's sa- self-sacrificing, and can you just imagine what Trinity Chippenham could be like if we, were, we lived lives that were in reflection of what Jesus came to, what came to do for us. And that we had that kind of um, tasty living that was seasoned with salt, seasoned with sacrifice, seasoned of counting others more significant than ourselves. And I would, I would bet and I would trust that we would see people being transformed by the glorious love of the Trinity. Uh, we would see ourselves being transformed by this love. We wouldn't be listening to the voices that tell us that we're not good enough, that tell us that we need to protect ourselves, tell us that we need to, to uh, be competitive with other people. Instead, we'll be listening to the voice of the Father who spoke to His Son and said, this is my Son, who am I love? And now that very love that the Father has for His Son, He has for us. And we can live in that confidence, in that place, and we can offer ourselves to other people and to one another. And we could, this, this church could be a place of vulnerability and real, realism and uh, humility and and we could really kind of be rallying around each other, caring for each other, but not being a holy huddle, actually looking out into the world and celebrating what other people are doing in the name of Christ and being a part of seeing his goodness spread. And that, that this is what the life of the kingdom of God is, is living for the, for the other, lifting them up, and welcoming as though they were God themselves. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that you... Um, but you love us so much that you gave us your son. And, and I know in some ways that we this kind of, this is a, a, a I guess a, a theme in this church. We've been listening to and hearing from your word quite often that we need to be people who are like you, that, that give our lives to the other, cherish the one that's uh, the least of these. And, uh, and that's because I think we need to hear it. We, we so often forget it. We so often ignore it. And we need you. Lord, we can't do anything apart from you. Uh, and that, and so I just ask that you would really give us hearts to see others the way that you see them, that, you would for, that we would forgive others and, and love others the way that you've forgiven and loved us. And Lord, may our lives be uh, lives of sacrifice to you, uh, uh, gifts of worship and praise to you, and may we never get in the way of one our own um, walk with you by the voices in our head and, and the voices of the world that say that we're not good enough for you. Uh, when you declare that you are, that you died for us, Jesus. And that we would never get in the way of, of people coming to you and, and being competitive with them. We just want to reflect your character. We want to be like you. We want to see everyone see Jesus, the one who died for our sins, who rose again and uh, gave us life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.